October 2020, Sunday morning, or at least that is when I'm supposed to start writing, but it's nearly noon and I'm just beginning. Haven't been able to write in months, teaching while caring for my daughter. Pandemic time, by now, an old story. Already this pandemic has had many seasons. The first of putting on a brave face when we rejoiced in the small pleasures of cooking extra time with the family, observing the foliage in the alleys where we walked to avoid other people. But those days are long gone. By October in Montreal, we already feel winter's chill and are terrified of the isolation it will bring. Nobody wants to cook another meal or wander the same alley. At least I don't. Until I return to quarantine after visiting my father in a New York hospital where he was thankfully only tending a resected intestine and not dying of COVID. When I come back from my three week long mask vigil by his bedside, even the, even the blooming weeds of the shit stained alley start to look good again. One day my daughter and I sneak out behind the house and pinch as many dried pods of morning glories as we can stuff into a jar. Their husks crumble as their dark seeds ping against the glass. After a half hour of joyful harvest, the novelty wears off. This is boring, she protests. We decide to build a planter out of the concrete pavers that have been stacked behind the house since we ripped them out to make room for a garden. Like all pieces of shit, they're hard to get rid of. So we drag them out to the alley to smash them into pieces that we can use to build a faux stone wall. My daughter, who insists on pushing my ass through the garden gate to lighten my burden, announces that she is the conductor and yells timber every time I launch a cement block against the sharp rock that I'm using to break them. She's too young to be schooled in mixed metaphors. I let it go. We're both exhilarated to mark territory beyond our home. To celebrate, she throws sharp chunks of concrete into a fetid pool in front of a garage door. Don't throw such big pieces, I say. The cars will pop their tires on them. Don't, don't, don't. All day, a chorus of don'ts. But what will they say when they pop their tires, she asks. This, her endless refrain, what will they say when? Fuck, that's what they'll say, fuck. Everything has shrunk, our lives compressed, tired, anxious, depressed, lonely, like everyone else. Six more months away from the studio added to the three years I've already been away since my daughter's birth. Not a moment to myself, not a thought in my head. For the first few months, we're happy just to be together. Picnics in the park before the snow has even melted. But these days, I'm longing for a glimpse of myself even more than I long for the company of other people. For several months, I try to reclaim some part of my brain by waking up at the crack of dawn to write before anyone else gets out of bed. Felt like Hercules for a while, but that too passes. Now I just want to sleep and eat. I've given up. I level with myself. I'm never going to make art again. I've had my chance and I'm not going to get another. Besides, what is the point of making another painting? We're trying to finish this book when there's nothing to look forward to but fascism and forest fires. It's hard to feel like the only role left to play before becoming a victim is becoming a witness to the end of everything we've treasured. 
democracy and voting rights, movie theaters and parties, elephants and rhinoceros, reasons to dress, California, happiness, leaving the house. I'm asked to give a talk at the Center for Ethics in Toronto, remote delivery, le mot du jour, would no longer gather in person for anything. Yet I'm honored that anyone thinks I might still have something worthwhile to contribute. I say yes. I've been practicing saying no for the last few years, but now that nobody asked me to do anything other than get them more milky or read or cook dinner or vacuum, I'm eager. The problem is that I have nothing to say. My mind, once glittering with flotsam like a storm-whipped shore, has been combed clean. I decide to write about caregiving. These days, it's the only thing I know anything about. Caregiving, what does that even mean? And what is its opposite? Indifference, caretaking, care leaving, leave taking, care keeping, not caring, care freedom, whatever it is, I long for it. To return a piece of myself to myself, at least for an hour or two a day so that I can paint or write. But how to make art when the sky is falling and people are dying and the planet is burning? And why? Especially if that art cannot transform and doesn't even try to chronicle any of the myriad catastrophe of our present moment. That's a worthy ethical question. And yet it's not the question with which I struggle. I make art because I must. What I wanna consider in this admittedly most roundabout way possible is the relation between the ethical imperative of caregiving as I understand it and the personal, perhaps even selfish imperative of making art, especially in times of crisis. How, in other words, can we immerse ourselves in the responsibilities of caregiving while still finding the mental and emotional space, let alone time? to be carefree in our creative expressions. To do so, I will look towards the examples of a few women artists whose work embodies both an ethic and aesthetic of care. Yet I will also consider how my own practice of painterly abstraction departs from this model. In the meantime, I have no answers to these ponderous dilemmas. So I keep my laptop open for the next few months like flypaper to catch stray thoughts. Just gonna share my screen now. A few nights after receiving this invitation, I watch a film by Agnes Varda about a French woman living in the outskirts of Los Angeles with her son near Venice Beach a single mother whose husband has left her. During the day, she types someone's manuscript while looking out the window at the sea. At night, she takes her son to the laundromat where they keep vigil over the sudsy clothes tumbling around in the machine. While they wait, they have the opportunity to observe all of the others who have nowhere else to go. At least Varda does. It's clear from their faces that they are exhausted by their own situations as our protagonist is by hers.
In another scene, mother and son search through the trash outside the complex of sea shanties where they live. They are looking for furniture and they find it. A formica tulip table, a flea-bitten green velvet couch that she has to scrub outside before bringing it into the apartment. Also, a pink chenille bedspread that they neglect to rescue. I would have taken that too. Of course, the director of the film was a woman. Who else would understand that there are moments when even laundry becomes a form of leisure? Or that searching for salvageable bits of trash is a way of trying to parse what remains of the self. Like the woman in the film, I search my, for myself in the husk of exhaustion that my face in the mirror has become. Varda described her film documenter as an emotion picture. And the emotions are everywhere in this film, albeit quietly encrypted in the murals, the protagonist pass, the wrinkles on faces, or the pleading eyes of a son who begs his mother to sleep beside him and even volunteers to move his mattress next to hers when she says that her bed is too small for both of them. Unfolding the laundry as I watch this emotion picture, oh good, I think to myself when we manage to put something on late at night after my daughter has gone to bed it will give me a chance to fold the clothes. My mother used to say, nobody notices when I clean the top of the refrigerator, but I know it's clean and that's enough. As if this secret knowledge was enough to nourish a life. Maybe these fragments are my talk on caregiving all the kinds I'm doing and not doing. I should probably research the subject more formally and incorporate insights from others, but I don't have the time. If I had the time, I wouldn't be folding the laundry while watching this movie. Or am I watching this movie while folding the laundry? What is foreground and what is background in this life of endless tasks? When I was a child, my father enlisted my sister and I to surprise my mother with a vacuum for Mother's Day. What a shitty gift, she said, when we presented it to her. Decades later, my father buys me a vacuum as a housewarming gift. It's the first and only vacuum I've ever owned and I can't say I wasn't pleased, having grown weary of using the lint roller to pick up the dog's fur from the carpets. My husband says, it's fun to vacuum. To quell my rage, I picture him picturing himself vacuuming triumphantly, making strident lines on a plush carpet. In his fantasy, he's not bending over on hands and knees, snaking the hose behind the toilet. I don't think he's ever vacuumed anything in his life. When my father buys it for me, the salesman shows me how to clean the vacuum by using its own hose to vacuum itself. What is the human equivalent of this, I wonder? What is vacuuming oneself a metaphor for? And what does it mean that I've become the kind of person who thinks everything, including buying a vacuum, must be a metaphor for my own effacement? I note that the woman in Varda's emotion picture has brown hair, sort of like my mother's.
I'm blonde, or at least I used to be, but now my head is almost completely brown, which at my age, I guess I should count as a victory. But I've been blonde for so long that every time I look in the mirror, I'm startled by the appearance of the person who looks back. She's older than I've ever been and plainer. She resembles my mother, but shorn of her mysterious beauty. I look at my mother's picture. I look at the lady in the emotion picture. And I try to imagine how I will look after I have to snip off the last bits of blonde in the mirror. Different, but maybe not terrible. All of these dead ends are just reminders of a life that no longer is. Younger selves and their illusions are a burden, dead weight. I don't need to carry them anymore. My three-year-old daughter thinks otherwise. Bursting into the bathroom after I've just emerged from the shower, she demands, why do you have such brown hair? Looks like the brown hair overtook the blonde hair. One point for vocabulary and one demerit for defamation. Overtook, overtaken. I marvel at how such a small child knows so many big words. I guess that's what happens when you spend all of your time in the company of adults overtaken by their own emotion pictures, subsumed. I guess I will have to demonstrate that word to her by drowning. Back in the years when I took care of my own mom, when she was dying, I used to think about writing a book on queer artists and the old world mothers from whom they could not separate. There'd be a chapter on Andy Warhol who lived with his mother in his Upper East Side townhouse, had her do all the penmanship on his early illustrations. Stuck her in one of his home movies and then couldn't be bothered to go to her funeral. And then a chapter on Roland Barthes who also lived with his mother for decades. After she died, Bart searched for and nearly couldn't find a photograph that did justice to who she was. At last he found it, but like all images, it just filled the absence with more loss. The process of searching for the photograph unleashed a desire or rather a need for him, the greatest theorist of his day, to consider photography as a signifying system dependent on both love and death. So he wrote Camera Lucida, Reflections on Photography, a book I teach religiously every year in a course called Poetics of the Image. Like the book of fragments from which this talk is borrowed, it is one part diary of mourning and one part love letter to one's mother concealed in a meditation on art. The last chapter of this book that may never be completed is a chapter on filmmaker Chantal Ackerman who made Jean Zielman the most important feminist film in the history of cinema. As is well known, Ackerman's mother, Natalia, survived Auschwitz. And in a certain light, one can detect the legacy of this inherited trauma imprinted on every frame that Ackerman ever shot. When Ackerman killed herself soon after her mother died, it was impossible for those of us who loved her, even distantly, not to consider the influence of one event on the other. Was it because Ackerman could not live without Nellie that she killed herself? Or was it because Ackerman was finally free to kill herself because she could no longer cause Nellie any pain? 
After all, Ackerman had been contemplating suicide since her very first film, Soap Ma Ville, which she made while still a teenager in 1968. I'm haunted by these questions, by the mortal coils that entangle us with our mothers, even after their deaths. When my friend Perry's mother died, he was already a middle-aged man counting to the years until he might be free of his father's nefarious influence as well. Yet he described the feeling of bereavement and abandonment by saying it was as if the world had no top. I've often wondered exactly what he meant by this striking image of a topless world. Was it a feeling of weightlessness that comes with the sudden absence of gravity? an exhilarating sense of freedom, or a terrifying sense that he might just float away, rootless and unrecognizable into the time and space of non-belonging. I've been drifting in this topless world for over a decade now, and yet in the last few years, my personal stakes in it have changed. Having become a mother, I recognize that I've now become someone else's death's head. I'm no longer the central character in my own life, but a ghost to be in my daughter's. And though she does not realize it yet, I am old, as old and tired as old mother lizard, and so much inexplicably older than I was when this pandemic began. What will she remember of this time when we were always together, every hour of every day, doing our best to keep everyone alive when she turned three and then four. What maps of survival and belonging will I leave for her when I am gone? I have no, I no longer have my own mother to turn and ask these questions about how to be while also being for another. So I turn to the ghosts of the other mothers who comfort me, artist mothers who wrangle with the questions of res and responsibilities of motherhood in their work, and who have some sense of the disfigurement of self that comes with nurturing the other. Aside from Sylvia Plath, I'm interested in stories that don't end with a woman's head in the oven. For decades, I've been irresistibly drawn to the work of Alice Neal, but it's only since becoming a mother that I've become obsessed with the question of how she survived making all those paintings in all those years of obscurity while raising her children in poverty. The answer is simple, she had no other choice. Painting was an obsession for Neal and it was unthinkable of, for her to give it up. But how did she do it? Neil painted the people in her expansive community with an acuity and empathy that it seems only a mother could have. But perhaps this perception is just a projection of my own mother delusions. Neil herself, who was once described as painting like a man, rejected not only this implicitly demeaning assertion, but the very notion of gendered painting. I don't feel that there is definite female painting, she said. I don't feel that you could tell a man's painting from a woman's painting. But how else to understand the visceral sense of recognition that defines not only Neil's portraits of young mothers, including her own daughters-in-law. 
who stare out at the formidable woman behind the easel with a sense of overwhelm that is so poignantly discernible to anyone who has experienced both the wonder and terror of keeping another being alive beyond the safety of one's womb. I wonder, what did Neil's young daughters-in-law make of their unconventional matriarch? A Bohemian communist who had married a Cuban painter and moved to Havana, who lost her first child, a daughter, a month before her infant's first birthday, and then lost her second daughter when her husband kidnapped her back to Cuba. This woman who had four children with three different men, who raised the only two she got to keep in such poverty that the older one nearly went blind from nutritional deficiencies. Although utterly devoted to her art, Neil was rightfully convinced that she was the best portrait painter alive. I persist in believing that Neil's vision is inextricable from her mothering of both paintings and children. Mothering is more than a recurring motif in Neil's work. It's a way of seeing. In her images of women, Neil offers a way of understanding that the body is a changeling vessel, sometimes bloated, sometimes tired, always anxiously attuned to the other's gaze and always in the thick of relationality, even when alone. Neil offers no sanitized, idealized image of mother and child in which the physical and emotional labor of raising a child has been rendered as immaculate as Mary's conception. That much is explicit in her early expressionist painting, Degenerate Madonna. Yet Neil envisions not just the mother, but all of her others in their vulnerability and ragged perseverance. Her famous blue paint line, limbing the gestural idiosyncrasy they adopt in order to survive. Neil's portraits offer a way of understanding the other's intimate relation to the self, as well as our inevitable estrangement from each other and from ourselves. It is as if Neil's paintings return the mother's occluded point of view to the scene in front of the mirror that Jacques Lacan famously analyzes in his essay on the primary development of the ego through the mediation of the child's reflected image. In Lacan's count of the mirror stage, the infant finally comes to recognize himself after being held up by his mother in front of the mirror for many months. The resulting revelation of the startling coherence and comeliness of his surprisingly bounded self catalyzes the development of the ego. That's me, I am that. And the less euphoric, but no less significant accompanying revelation that I am also not that, by which he means primarily her, the mother, to whom he was once not only bounded, but of. But as we all know, recognition of oneself in an image is fraught business. For although the infant appears to himself in the mirror far more ideal and incorporated than the overwhelming chaos of sensation that he experiences 
The mirror's mediating force cleaves the very ego it births. To be one with one's image is to be both doubled and divided, identifying and disidentifying, enselved in and enslaved by one's reflection. In other words, inevitably othered. Thus for Lacan, the primary recognition of the self is simultaneous with the discovery of one's alienation from it, lack, and the perennial loss of psychic unity this entails. But what does this well-worn psychoanalytic scene and its tropes have to do with Alice Neal? Well, I'll tell you, Lacan forgets about, or maybe is just not interested in the mother holding up the infant and what she sees in the euphoric scene of egoic recognition unfolding in her arms. Neil doesn't forget. Because the mother doesn't just disappear, even though the child may become blinded to her in his harrowing drama of self-recognition. The mother sees. She watches the other shed the carapace of her skin and try on the contours of their new self. This other who was once and will always remain a part of herself, however estranged or distant they may become, kneels there behind the mirror, which is also her easel, the suddenly invisible support that has staged the scene and then disappeared from its frame so that the other can have this essential encounter with himself, can be and become. In mother and child, as well as in nearly all of her portraits, Alice becomes the mirror into which her subjects look. Alice sees her daughter-in-law, Nancy, fellow mother, artist, and most intimate friend, and paints her in a way that recognizes the renewed drama and crisis of self-recognition that motherhood brings. For it's not only the infant who gazes into the mirror and is surprised to encounter such an uncannily bounded self when the twin demands of the changeling body and subsumed mind have rendered the experience of being borderless. It is also me, mama. Yet the tragedy for the child, by which I mean for me, is that by the time you notice she is still there, this mother from whom you have triumphantly separated and then could no longer see. She's old and tired and has become invisible to everyone else except to you, to whom she appears as a death's head, tolling the bell of your own mortality. And that's when the mother's insistence on seeing herself becomes not an act of vanity as all the old painters dismissed women looking at themselves in the mirror, but an act of salvation. If Neil's vision captured the existential drama of selfhood that motherhood induced, she was also not only attuned to, but intimately familiar with the way in which poverty and precarity challenged the capacity of maternal protection. In her early paintings of mothers and their children in her community in Spanish Harlem, Neil's palette has not yet achieved the new world Easter egg clarity that define her portraits of the new left and its fellow travelers. 
Take for instance, this mother pictured here holding on to only three of her five children, not long after her husband, Carlos, was afflicted with TB in one of the worst epidemics in the city. If Neil's painting captures this family empathetically, it's not the concern of an outsider curiously peering in on the plight of the ethnic poor. Carlos Negron, pictured here, was the brother of Neil's lover, Jose Santiago Negron, a Puerto Rican nightclub singer and guitarist with whom she moved from Greenwich Village to Spanish Harlem after they had a son, Richard. Here they are in bed together. Although they never married, Jose was already married to another woman with another family and left Neil with Richard when the child was very small. That makes this enshadowed Spanish family, her enshadowed Spanish family. And yet you wouldn't know it just from looking at the painting, not because Neil paints it with any great emotional distance, but because nearly all of Neil's paintings have this simultaneous quality of familial intimacy and observational amplitude. For a less expansive artist, this might be a contradiction, but for the humanist Alice Neal, this simultaneity was the very definition of looking. Whether they were lovers or neighbors or family or friends or acquaintances or allies or rivals, or as in this painting, Sheila, the child of one's lover's other lover, all of Neal's subjects were worthy, were kin. As we glean from these portraits of individuals whose lives are visibly complicated and made more difficult by their gender, race, class, neighborhood, and immigration status, Neil was attuned to what we now describe as intersectionality, avant la lettre. Yet in her portraits from the 1930s and 40s, men are nonetheless far less constrained by domesticity than their female counterparts. Whether pictured as committed union organizers or Dionysian satyrs, men reshape the world while women endure. Some of the exceptions to Neil's early portraits of women as women and mothers as mothers caricature women whose lives also engaged professional or public roles. In this small watercolor from 1929 called The Intellectual, we see a sharp-faced intellectual woman dressed in a sharp red dress, peering with disdain at the woman with the misfortune of having her pointy tits exposed. Intellectual women, one might presume, from looking at this unflattering burlesque, don't breastfeed. Why then were my own tits exposed in public for more than two years? How can we be both or more than both? As Neil got older and the world began to catch up with her bohemianism, her vision became increasingly attuned to seeing women in their multiplicity. Take, for example, Neil's portrait of groundbreaking feminist art critic Linda Nochlin and her daughter Daisy, which invites us to encounter Nochlin as intellectual, feminist, 
critic, woman, and mother simultaneously. Neil captures Nachlin casually dressed yet intent before her gaze. One protective hand rests on the leg of her small daughter, a ginger haired mirror of her mother already dressed in a feminist pantsuit with red sneakers that might nonetheless still launch her over the rainbow. Although we don't see Neil behind the easel, this is a portrait of two women who spent their lives devoted to seeing and making art history anew, engaged in the act of looking at each other. And the fact that Nachlin's child is present for and attuned to this encounter, just as Neil's two sons must have been attuned to their mother's work, which surrounded them in the living room that was also Neil's studio, is not an accident or an affectation. It's a simple fact. Yet Neil's portraits, portrait captures more than the recognition of camaraderie and complicity between a great woman painter and the critic who demanded to know why there hadn't been any great women painters in her provocative 1971 essay written two years before this portrait was made. Nochlin's essay insists on making the contributions of women artists legible in the male dominated genealogy of Western art history. Neil's portrait of the engaged feminist intellectual likewise insists that we recognize Nochlin as a mother as well as a thinker. But Neil's record of the encounter also implies that we recognize the unseen Neil as a towering figure in Nochlin's revisionist pantheon. In other words, as the answer to the very question Nochlin's essay poses, why have there been no great women painters? If Neil's attitude towards her sitters is defined by an aesthetic of care that takes into account their full humanity, then it's also defined by an ethic of self-preservation in which portraits of the other are always simultaneously a portrait of Neil who refused to question her right to make paintings or the simultaneity of her identity as artist, woman, and mother. Still, I can't help but wonder what must have been Neil's own charged personal investment in her many paintings of women and their daughters. Certainly even art history's most petific images of mothers and children must have felt insufficient to Neil, whose first daughter died of diphtheria before her first birthday and whose second daughter, Isabetta, was disappeared when Neil's then partner, the Cuban painter, Carlos Enriquez, took the child back to Cuba where he left her in the care of his relatives. Gutted by despair over the loss of both husband and child, Neil was hospitalized after trying to commit suicide. She only saw Isabetta three times between her kidnapping and the grown child's own suicide in 1982, two years before Neil's death from cancer. During one of those visits in 1934, Neil painted her six-year-old daughter naked as children are wont to be. Neil's portrait of her estranged daughter is provocative, far more than her other ports, portraits of children from this era 
It captures the child's defiance of the painter's gaze. With her determined hand on her tiny hips, her miniature vulva exposed, and her hair blown back into sculpture as if by an unseen Hollywood fan, the six-year-old Isabetta is a bold refutal, I'm sorry, rebuttal to Shirley Temple, whose irresistible cuteness made such easier demands on her viewers during those same years. In contrast to Shirley's coy, ain't I cute? We get Isabetta's demand to acknowledge her unprotected existence, as well as her simultaneous, so what, when we try. Neil acknowledges this force of nature unsentimentally, as if it isn't her own child. She sees the naked girl Tempest without the pedophilic lust of Balthus or Hollywood's dollar sign eyes, but as a mother who recognizes that our children never fully belong to us and we only partially to them. In the beginning, I didn't want children. I just got them, Neil once said. I loved Isabetta, but I wanted to paint. Years later, Neil supposedly failed to recognize the adult Isabetta when she sat in the front row of a lecture her mother was giving. What Neil doesn't capture in this portrait and what she seemed to have missed later was not her daughter's invulnerability to the painter's gaze, which she gets, but her vulnerability to the absence of her mother's look. As a dear friend whose mother is also an artist once said to me, her art was my primal wound. I am as haunted by this picture as I am by her words. I wanted my daughter. I wanted her so badly that I kept trying to have her at 40 after four miscarriages, but I also wanted to paint and I still do. In Neil's portrait of mother and daughter, Carmen and Judy, we are again confronted by a daughter's exposed genitals, but this almost excruciatingly tender portrait of maternal love and filial need presents both a topless and a bottomless worldview as the infant's exposed pudendum is mirrored by the mother's exposed breast, so the child's hunger is answered by the mother's sustenance. But this painting also suggests the limits of this synchronicity. The disabled child's need is endless, while the mother's ability to provide is inevitably hemmed in by her own mortality. Although our race and class diverge, I can't help but notice that Carmen is an old mama like me. And when I look at this painting, it pains me to wonder how long can she keep it up? How long can we shelter this vulnerability? But you don't need to be a mother to feel the insatiability of need and the heartbreaking insufficiency of the mortal body that Neil captures. Care is not the same as possession, and it's certainly no guarantee of protection. As Neil knew so well, sometimes they slip away from you, even become unknown. As the brilliant critic Hilton Owls writes, the point is that Neil understood Carmen and Judy. Carmen, a Haitian cleaning woman, took care of Neil's home and babysat for her daughter-in-law, Nancy. 
with the beatific look on Carmen's face, the look of the afflicted who feel it is morally offensive to show the world their affliction, she shows herself to kneel as her mentally challenged child looks up at the figure she cannot help but love. There is not one of us who has not been Judy, Alice writes. Life has harmed us, injured the brain and heart, and yet there is the softness of the woman who holds us. As she does so, we imagine she holds up the world too. Judy's pudendum, Carmen's breast. These are the targets that men zero in on in many, many paintings and books and in life to establish their sovereignty. But what if you took that guy out of the picture? What if the conversation was between two women who shared to some degree a different but still intense interest in the child? That's what Neil depicts in this painting too, the private space of women talking to each other about their bodies and their female children's bodies. There's not one of us who has not been Judy, writes the famed black male queer writer and critic. Neil's portraits of motherhood are not just portraits of mothers for other mothers and certainly not just other white women. They're portraits of relationality that speak to and include us all. Endless need and poignant insufficiency, multiplicity and defiant self-reliance, self-fashioning and its visible seams, intimate entwining, solitude in togetherness, the self and the other that we perceive in the mirror. If Neil's vision of complex personhood was indelibly impacted by her own maternal loss, then perhaps this intimate estrangement is what makes room for us and allows us our simultaneous identification and disidentification with her subjects. We are all Judy, none of us are Judy, only Judy is Judy. And we only know Judy through Carmen's love for her, which is to say, not at all, which is only a part of what Alice Neal gives us here. A face that only a mother could love was every face that Neal painted and every pudenda. Neal's irradiating eye is not only legible in her portraits of mothers and children, it's there throughout her oeuvre. Let's look, for instance, at Neil's haunting unfinished portrait of James Hunter, Black Draftee from 1965. Neil never completed the painting because Hunter never returned to her studio for a second sitting. As little is known of him beyond his appearance on Neil's canvas, one can only presume that he was sent off to Vietnam and perhaps did not return. Although his face is exquisitely rendered, the unfinished state of the canvas speaks to how much we don't know about him. Indeed, all we do know about him is that he's a young man, a draftee, and a black man whose control over his own body has been colonized by the deeply racist military state of America. His expression registers poignantly, but his body is quite literally missing in action. Like the presence of Nachlin's daughter in the previous portrait, this absence is not an affectation, but a fact. And Neil doesn't try to fill in the gaps or the missing body. Instead, she allows it to register 
as a sign of the chasm between what we see and what we understand. Neil's painting acknowledges that his life is larger and more complex than any frame the artist could put around it, but also that his body has been effaced, not just by her paintbrush, but by history. People come first, as the current title of the show of Neil's work at the Metropolitan Museum attests, but people are more than we can ever know or need them to be. We are all disappearing in the way of all flesh, but we are not all James Hunter. We are not all casualties of state violence. Some of us get to live. And Neil's recognitions of these limits and distinction is part of her aesthetics of care. Combing the shores where desire becomes stranded. I collect these mother visions like bits of sea glass, some still sharp enough to cut, none quite translucent enough to see. Who am I? And how to find the time to make the work that I alone am convinced I have been put here to make. I'm not the first harried mother to become obsessed with the ordeals of other mothers. In the last few months of being pregnant with my daughter, I immerse myself in the literature on motherhood, not the million manuals about how to raise a child properly and get them to sleep. This, I am stupidly convinced, I'll be able to wing. But there had to be literature about how to become a mother without sacrificing being a self. I wasn't interested in self-help books, but in accounts, however gruesome, of women artists who had managed to do it. Photographer and conceptual artist Moira Davey must have been compelled by the same drive to consult the literature. She ended up editing an entire anthology called The Mother Reader, which I devoured in the months leading up to my delivery. Mid-century women with their husbands in graduate school, their babies on their hips, their own talents going fallow. At times, an excruciating read. Well, at least it's not like that anymore, I lie to myself. For in spite of the grand changes that feminism has wrought, the individual lives of many women are still overwhelmed by the responsibilities of caretaking. And as every one of us here today knows, the pandemic has exacerbated this in ways beyond measure. I don't find the text that I'm searching for until nearly a year after my daughter is born. For the first time since her birth, I managed to steal away to my studio to paint. Like me, my daughter sleeps fitfully and her naps are never assured. Perhaps I should have read at least one of those damn sleep books that I haughtily regarded with disdain. But there she is, peacefully adrift in an unusually deep sleep. It feels like it's now or never before I leave, I subject myself to the detested ritual of suctioning a machine to my breast to pump milk in case she wakes up while I'm gone. After an agonizing half hour of feeling like industrialized livestock, I fill only two thirds of a bottle. I am old, depleted, worn out. It's as much as I've ever managed to do. I look at it apologetically. My husband says, just go. Once I get there, however, the void awaits. For it's not just the nine months of her gestation and the first year of her life 
By then, I'd been largely absent from the studio for many years during the half dozen miscarriages that surrounded her birth. Yet out of fear of never painting again, I stubbornly pay rent at my studio during the long periods of my absence. It costs dearly, but not as dearly as what giving it up would cost to my soul. But there I am back at last, expecting to rediscover the ecstasy of creation, or at least the more reliable agony of it. And instead there is nothing. I've lost all direction and inspiration as if my mind has been effaced, not an idea in my head or an inkling of where to begin. So I sit staring at the blank walls, waiting for colors to start spreading in my mind and taking shape as they always eventually do. But this time the colors don't come. Oh, my precious squandered time ticking, ticking away while I sit waiting. Never one for idle hands, I begin to clean. Even if I am cleaning, I think, at least it is quiet here and I am using my time. I organize the paint cans by color and stack them up into silos. I pull up all the bits of green papers, green painter's tape stuck to the floor and sweep great clouds of dust into the center of the room. But the point of having a room of one's own is not merely to clean it. Oh, mama, it is not enough. It wasn't for you and it isn't for me. I sit bewildered, lost. Who am I? Will I ever find this part of myself again? I scan the shelves. All my old friends are there, shimmering in the firmament, guiding the way. Neil, de Kooning, Frankenthaler, Mitchell, Rauschenberg. Oh, my people speak to me. I pull them down from the shelf, expecting to hear the usual commandments through the pages. Yes, let go. Or as my own teacher, Ronnie, always told me, quoting from his own father, do the thing and you shall have the power. Yet as I flip through the pages, what strikes me is the immensity of the gap between their lives and mine. What freedom there is in their strokes. And look at those enormous studios. De Kooning's Hampton's Bunker. Mitchell tossing drinks back all those late nights in Monet's garden house where she lived and worked. Or Frankenthaler's studio on 10th Street the mythical Garden of Eden, if there ever was one. But I know it's not space, it's time. Look what Morris Lewis was able to accomplish in the cramped dining room of his DC row house, I remind myself. As my super ego encants its favorite admonishment, so many people have done so much more with so much less, but oh time. The endless hours spent immersed in those canvases, there is no substitute for how it teaches you. Will I never have such freedom again? But come now, I remind myself, this is the great myth. And once you buy it, you've all but given up. Even before my child was born, I never had time. Always squeezing a precious few hours, one or two days a week at most, between the demands of teaching and that ever renewing mountain of writing that like Sisyphus, I always failed to surmount. 
Yet it's not just a question of time. It's also about perception. As my friend Carolee once told me, when she realized I was a painter in addition to being a scholar, they will never let you be both. Woman to woman, there was no need to clarify who the they was, writer, artist, painter, critic. But what about the need to support oneself? Kafka, Wallace Stevens, William Carlos Williams, they all had day jobs, yet no one has ever questioned the separation of church and state in their work. But why are these dualities so impossible to abide in a woman? What expectations of purity still guide what it means to be both a woman artist and a mother? And what happens to this already dense equation when you throw mother back into the mix? This, even Carol Lee could not stomach. My paintings are my children, she said, in radical defiance of her generation's expectations of maternity. What do you want to have a baby for? I long to give it all up, the teaching, the criticism, the scholarship, but who's gonna pay the bills then? That's my problem. I'm no Alice Neal. I'm not brave enough to jump headlong into poverty. In my paintings, I flirt with precarity, channel the overwhelming sensation of losing my footing in the scarcely controllable waves of chance. But in my life, I'm terrified of drowning. That's when I come upon a poem by Sylvia Plath, nestled in a volume that I've tucked between the art books. Why do I feel compelled to reassure you that I'm not one of those Plath-obsessed women and she's not my usual muse? Morning song. Love set you going like a fat gold watch. The midwife slapped your foot soles and your ball cry took its place among the elements. Our voices echo, magnifying your arrival. New statue. In a drafty museum, your nakedness shadows our safety. We stand round blankly as walls. I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. All night, your moth breath flickers among the flat pink roses. I wake to listen. A far sea moves in my ear. One cry, and I stumble from bed, cow heavy and floral, in my Victorian nightgown. Your mouth opens, clean as a cat's. The window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. And now you try your handful of notes, the clear vowels rise like balloons. Sylvia Plath wrote this astonishing meditation on motherhood in February, 1961, 10 months after she had given birth to her daughter, Frida, and two years before she committed suicide by gassing herself in the oven. Although published in, 1960, in May 1961, it wasn't included in a book-length collection until after Plath's death. Ariel, the last of Plath's collections, came out in 1966. The poem sets me going like a fat gold watch. It's the first text that I am really able to relate to since my daughter's birth. 
I know what Plath means when she writes, one cry and I stumble from bed, cow heavy and floral. It's no wonder my painter friend Lydia Jansen started painting engorged cows on canvases where wild horses used to roam after she became a mother. Platt's poems capture the shape, sounds, textures, and bloat of maternal exhaustion and alienation. For though they may howl in protest when entering this godforsaken world, children do immediately take up their place among the elements, their hearts ticking away like a wound up watch. And stunned as we may be by the naked new statue that's taken up residence in the otherwise staid museums of our lives, it's a mother's job to keep them ticking. And so we wake over and over in an endlessly interrupted night, our ears attuned to every cry, stumble into their room, snap on a light and watch as the window square whitens and swallows its dull stars. Night blurs into morning, time melts. The mother feeds the child's endless wound of hunger, the mouth that opens clean as a cat. As soon as I'm done reading the poem, I impulsively scribble some key phrases from it on my studio wall. I'm no more your mother than. Slow effacement. The wind's hand, a far sea. Cow heavy, window square, dull stars, handful of notes. It's as if these words too have been dispersed by the wind's hand. I'm no more their mother than I am the mother of this talk, which feels even to me as if it has been assembled from fragments blown towards consciousness by the wind's hand. Platt's phrases speak to me. Effacement. I don't realize it until I read the poem, but this word singularly describes my own experience of my life in the last few years. My mind has been scrubbed clean, my personality erased. Plath's mourning song has become my own. And for the first time, I realize that I'm mourning my own loss of self, mourning song. And that effacement is the only thing left for me to paint. For years I've painted abstractly, abjuring all source material and symbol, but now I decide I will paint these phrases. But how and what to do with that devastating third stanza? I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. Even before deciphering I'll just let you read that, the third stanza. I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. Even before deciphering Platt's metaphors and understanding how the poem works, I feel its acute truth in my body. I'm no more your mother than. The sense of dispossession, or perhaps non-possession, of the very child that has emerged from your womb, Plath's chilling acknowledgement of primal disidentification 
refuses the interpolation of motherhood, even as she goes through the motions of wake and feed. That's not me. But there's more going on in the poem than the lyrical refutation of motherhood's overtaking of the self. There's also Platt's recognition of the wonder at the child to whom one has given birth and who in spite of the fact that they genetically mirror us effaces their source as much as they reflect it. I'm no more your mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. I parse this metaphor to mean that the mother is like a rain cloud, which has distilled a mirror, i.e. a puddle, in which the disappearance or effacement of the cloud, i.e. the mother, is reflected. And it matters that this effacement of the mother cloud happens by the wind's hand, a natural force beyond human control with its own changing directions and gustful intensities. But note how that word hand personifies and embodies the wind and thus attributes some responsibility for the force of the obliterating gale, even as the rest of the stanza abjures both ownership and intention. My friend Pat Bat warned me that my paintings would change after I became a mother, but how I wanted to know. Like me, she's an abstract painter, a mother, a teacher, but unlike me, she's a minimalist who paints patterns of repeating lines through a grid of string. Oh, I don't know, but it will. You'll see, you won't be able to do what you did before and you'll have to do something else, she tells me. I'm horrified. To my mind, I've only just discovered an idiom of painting that feels like my own. And having struggled to find it for years, I'm loath to lose it so quickly. After I had Rachel, Pat says, I started painting eggs. There is no way I'm going to start painting eggs, but I wonder, will I return to figuration, that thing I lost so many years ago when I first lost my sense of self? Will I become the next Mary Cassatt or Alice Neal or another mother who falls from the wall and is convinced that she can't be put back together again? The answer turns out to be no. I will not return to figuration and I will not paint eggs. Instead, I will paint the following series of paintings by stringing together shards of time in that the hot summer afternoons while my infant daughter sleeps fitfully in a tangle of muslin sheets. Cow heavy, bloated, round and pink a self-portrait as breast and bleeding wound. Note the way the overly simplified shape squeezes against the frame, leaving no room for the contemplation of anything else. A reduction of a world to the intimate task of feeding a child. Moth breath, soft, quiet, attuning the ear to new sounds trying to heed the call of being amongst the incessant cries, how to find quiet in this maelstrom 
I search for it. Gone are the loud ecstatic bursts of color that have always characterized my work and which I have always detested for the way they so accurately represent my inner tumult. At night, I sit in the rocker with my daughter on my lap long after she has fallen asleep. There are so many tasks to which I should turn, the endless washing of tiny things, the midnight tidying of everything that she has scattered across the floor, all of the papers that have not been graded, the recommendation letters that have not been written. More than any content that I teach in my lectures, I consider my greatest responsibility as a professor to deliver my students into their own futurity. But instead, I just sit, listening to her breathe, learning how to be present, how to witness her becoming while looking upon my own changes without judgment. This is my time. Perhaps I am on my way to becoming Agnes Martin after all. A Farsi. All my life, I've resisted being a woman, and now I am drowning in it. My mind is thick with mist. There's nothing on the horizon but a depthless, amorphous haze. I will never paint the sea like Turner, so I decide to paint the soup that my mind has become. Effacement. Happy paintings are all alike. Every unhappy painting is unhappy in its own way. This one had 10 ugly gloppy paintings underneath it, a palimpsest, to use everyone's favorite word, a failure. Finally, it turned. While our baby slept in the next room and America began to seem more and more like Weimar Germany, my husband poured acid on 35 millimeter family slides for an art project he was making. Finally, you're using color, I said, when I saw the chemical explosions on his scalded slides of swimming pools and snowstorms. I was thinking of your paintings, he said, while he defaced an unwitting family's lost archive. So I borrowed it back, turning his memento mori of America into a record of my own slow effacement by the wind's hand. The wind's hand. This is too pretty and easy of a painting to describe what Plath means, but sometimes darlings resist the slaughter. The window square. This is still in collage form. I ordered the stretchers to turn it into a painting two years ago, but I haven't yet had time to stretch it as it takes more hands than I have. But whose hands are those beckoning us into the gloaming glimpsed beyond the window square. Don't think for a moment that I don't recognize this hour long complaint as a symptom of white privilege that it is. I may be as old as Carmen, but our struggles are not the same. In the years when the world forgot that I existed and I didn't have the time to remind anyone otherwise, my friend Pat invited me to show my new paintings at the third barn, a space that she and her partner, Scott Shirk, had converted into a gallery and collaboration space on their farm in Pennsylvania. It was a lifeline 
pulling me back from the far sea where I was drowning. I decided I would show the Plath series and call the exhibition Morning Songs. My husband showed his ravishingly beautiful slideshow, Bird Calls, in a neighboring barn. But there was one painting missing from the series. I had never figured out how to paint that core phrase of that unforgettable third stanza. I laid a stretch of unsized canvas underneath the paintings that I placed on the floor while making my pores. I left it there for several months. When I had finished the series, I looked for the first time at the painting that I had not painted. To my astonishment, it had everything, the window square, the dull stars, the handful of notes rising like balloons. But even more crucially, I was no more its mother than the cloud that distills a mirror to reflect its own slow effacement at the wind's hand. This carelessness became my own aesthetic of care. The painting had made itself while my thoughts tangled around my daughter's sleeping body, snagging on the question of how I might survive long enough to give us both what we needed. It was all I had left. It was how the freedom crept back in. Thank you. <laughs>